procurement allyship. I don't know. I just made that up. Trademark. No, I'm going to steal that. That's no, really funny. Well, like you didn't hear what credit. I said. Trademark. Hey, can I get our editors to remove this so I can take full advantage of this? He's never going to use it. This is going to steal from the. Okay. Well, oh that's, man, that's, that's, that's true. That's point. a bad example. Oh, and we're man. we're teaching in real time, folks. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> this was a skit. We gotcha. Gotcha again. Hey there, if you've joined the podcast today, my name is Chris Jarvis. I work with companies on employee giving and volunteering programs. And my name's Jake McIsaac. I spend a lot of time thinking about public safety and restorative justice. So we are having conversations here that we've been having for 20 years. Yeah, the only difference now is we press record and share it with you. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, Chris tells us a story about butter and this lumberjack moment in the backyard. Who knew there were rules to butter. Okay, you're, you're making me sound really weird here, Jake. I hope everybody sticks around for this episode. It sounds like I have a thing for butter. You'll know what he's talking about. Stick around. So, Jake, you were telling me about an event that you went to. Was it this week? Yeah, yeah, this week. It was a, it was a um, professional development session on... Um, autism spectrum disorder and uh, how to how to support learners, particularly students in our post-secondary environment, but probably scalable to right through elementary school. It was kind of, it was really interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. And based on what we've talked about so far, just sort of cursory back and forth, I think the applications could go a little bit further. And I okay. have one real world application I'd like to see what you think about uh, okay. for something that we're planning to do. Okay. So um, but first, let me let me tell you a story that makes me think uh, it uh, makes me curious to see if it, we can apply this a little bit more broadly. So when I was growing up, I learned a few things in my house. Like th these were rules like you make your bed. Mm -hmm. You don't go to school without making your bed. Um, chores are normal on Saturday. Um, we always have a nap on Sunday afternoon. Oh, yes. Right. Same, same. Yeah. Wednesday night, you go to prayer meeting. I grew up in a, in a fairly, um, mm -hmm. religious environment. So there was lots of church and I, uh, you know, when you're a little kid, you just, did, did, you, did you have church in the morning and in the evening? And then yeah, all of a even, sudden you, you had Sunday, to have the nap between. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so course. you had okay, Sunday school, same. church. Yeah. Both of it. Right. And then mm -hmm. the nap, although I, I guess we've never talked about naps and then, uh, Sunday night church. So, you know, it was exhausting and quite boring for children. All of these were like norms in my life. And I, I remember sort of slowly learning that not everybody had the same set of norms, especially when my friends on Sunday, Saturday would be running around playing and I was cutting lumber in the backyard for the wood stove that we have. And <laughs> can you come and play? No, I can't come and play. I have to work. Why don't you have to work? Are you now, not how, working? How old, how old would you have been? Um, 11. Okay. 12. With a chainsaw, cutting wood, splitting wood out back. Okay. Not not all day, just four or five hours. That's all. And oh, then yeah. we could, yeah. Then we could go do lighter work. I, I <laughs> You know, kids, we always remember sort of the worst parts of it, but I'm sure I went and had some fun. Okay. So I remember where I was at this house on the Eastern shore and we went in and uh, I was going to make toast or something for people. I don't know. I was, I was little, I was 10, nine, 10, something like that. So I make the toast and I open the fridge and I pull out the butter. Mm -hmm. And I had learned something really important in life. And that was when you use the butter to put on your toast, you would take a swipe of the butter, put it on. 
then either wipe the blade off to get the crumbs off or scoop the rest of the butter in a very careful way so there's no crumbs left. Mm. No crumbs in the butter ever. And this was important because the person coming behind didn't necessarily want to eat bits of your leftover toast. And, you know, you didn't want it to look disgusting. So there were consequences if you didn't do this right. Obviously, you're a little kid. You had to learn. And, what, what, uh, what, what, what are the consequences to the crumbs in the butter? Uh, some yelling. Who okay. put the crumbs in the butter? It mm. was just a bad situation. And it, it just it was a sign of laziness and maybe a sort of a disrespect for authority. Like if you didn't do this, like you were just, you're being rebellious. You were being, you're kind of a bad kid. So wow, we are unpacking at a phenomenal <laughs> level right now. Okay. Keep going. My parents <laughs> didn't intend any of this. They're just like, I don't want crumbs. <laughs> no. I don't want your filthy crumbs in my butter and your leftover jam and peanut butter. Don't be a slob. Right. So, okay, got it. so I pulled the butter out of this person's <laughs> fridge and it was riddled with like bits of jam and toast. And I had one immediate thought and I remember it so clearly to this day, apparently there's something wrong in this house. <laughs> These people are immoral. Like I had this feeling there's of this dread, judgment. Like, no, I felt afraid. Okay. Like what the, what the blankety blank, which, mm -hmm. you know, when I'm 10 and a little, little church going kid was what the gooseberry holy humping is going on around <laughs> here. Cause I didn't know how to swear, I guess. But I, I, that right. stands out in my mind as a very, very big memory because of how I felt, because I discovered an indicator. Nobody had ever said it really out loud. I didn't learn it anywhere. It wasn't on a poster anywhere, but I knew these were bad people. Now, only later would I <laughs> reconcile, oh, that was just a Jarvis thing. That's not a real rule in the world. Like it doesn't actually carry that significance. It was just a preference. I wonder. I'm just. I'm. I'm thinking about it the other way. So your okay. your your Eastern Shore friend comes to your house. I wonder yeah. if they have the same wow moment when they open. Like what a clean batch of butter this is. Like <laughs> this. <laughs> this is pristine butter. Like amazing. I wonder if they are thinking that when they're looking in your fridge. Or oh wait wait. Do you keep butter in the fridge? Oh, yeah, you do. Well, yeah, okay, I, I so this is a whole okay. different level. Right. So you go to somebody's house. Where Do you have any butter? Yeah, it's in the cupboard. What is wrong yeah, with okay. you? Yeah, okay. So that Slimy, is a rule. You, so Can't you have it. a fridge butter rule, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, when you get the butter out of a cupboard and it's half melted and it's really limp. But, it's but, like, you're, but you're right. Um, those are these hidden rules. That, that right. even when you're describing you know, soft butter in the cupboard. I have this sense, like, I don't want that. That is not appealing to me. That is out of place. It is out of place. It, there's a weird signal at a level you never formally learned or understand. Okay. Right. So this brings us back to, to what you were, the, the course you took. Could you explain a little bit of that again for everyone? Yeah. And then we can kind of expand the insights, well, at least explore the expansion of them. Yeah. So, I mean, one of the ways that uh, it was suggested to support students, there are a couple different approaches. One approach was this almost like a deficit model. And and there's there's actually a pop culture reference to that. So there's on Netflix, you can watch a show called Love on the Spectrum, where it's taking 
young adults who want to experience dating for the first time. They're giving a dating coach or sort of a social cues coach to help them through and say, you know, it is normal to engage in conversation. So here are the social cues to navigate in the world. And so you're going to go out and it's polite and generally um, accepted to ask your date some questions, but don't pepper the questions at them like it's you have to give them time to respond. So you can ask a question and then wait, and you can make eye contact as you're listening to them. And this demonstrates so they describe a whole bunch of these behaviors. This is uh, an applied behavioral analysis approach that someone is observing and coaching, right? So they're going to say, You did this really well, do more of that, or this didn't quite land. And so this, this idea is if you can teach the rules, these hidden rules, this hidden curriculum, as, as it's sometimes called, hidden social curriculum, mm-hmm. that a person will have a better experience navigating a, a, a world that's um, full of these hidden traps, uh, sort of more neurotypically structured world. Okay. And hidden curriculum, I, you know, since we first talked about it, There is a whole Wikipedia page on it. It's really interesting where it comes from. And it includes the procedures, rules, relationships, and structures, and particularly around how human beings learn in a formal context, Mm -hmm. like you said, right? In school and whatnot. So that's where it's originated from. And what's been really interesting is that education used to include a a very explicit teaching of, of how to... Not assimilation either, although that was the point. The point is <laughs> yeah. to teach people how to let go of the things that don't fit the dominant culture. Oh, I think assimilation is is the right word. Yeah. You okay. Describe, here's how you yeah. dress. Here's how you act. Right. And I think it perfectly exemplifies the the way human beings saw each other at the turn of the last century. I mean, and I mean 1900. So we're getting right. too many centuries okay. so long to say that anymore. But have you ever heard of something called the human zoo? A human no. zoo. Okay, so these are this is something that was pretty normal in the late 1800s, early 1900s, Teddy Roosevelt brought a number of Filipinos back from. Yes, I have. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. Okay, so I think it was the I think it was St. Louis, the uh, expo in St. Louis, the World Fair, and they had three areas for this human zoo. Uh, Again, which was not strange. Uh, Lots of places had human zoos. France, Uh, they had them. All through yeah, Europe that yeah. involved yeah. native folks from uh, right. so you'd have the original barbarian in their raw, uncivilized way. So they had a number of people that they they trapped, captured, mm-hmm. enslaved, put in crates, and brought over from the highlands. Mm-hmm. Then they had a group of people who were who had agreed to become civilized to whiteness, and then they had the white version of Filipinos, and they, I forget what the names were, but they were just more horrific than how I'm explaining it and it showed them dressed up like white people mm-hmm. awkwardly doing white type things and they had to spend all day in their little sets play acting for people to come by and look at while they're eating popcorn so it was and the whole idea was here's how america is helping the filipinos we're moving them you can see where they were it's a travesty and you can see what we've done it's something to be celebrated and this plays out in education um, where you know native groups Native North Americans would be forced to dress differently, act differently, behave differently, because the more white they could get, the more successful they would be. That's kind of the beneficial way to talk about it, right? Like if you can learn to fit into our society, you can thrive. But if you're going to stay as an outlier, you can live on the reservation and we don't care. 
talking about Roosevelt in that way, this and and the Philippines, that is exactly that go west, young man, right? Yeah, the conquering manifest the west and, and, and that manifest yeah. destiny to try and make everyone into that image of what good and right and perfect and white was. Yep. So yep. if we can, you know, go all the way around the globe and get right back to the very beginning. You'll go west until it's east, until it's all unified, and well, we know what that looks like. Yes. Um, yeah. In, a, in, so, in and, horrific and, ways. So uh, you just mentioned this manifest destiny. So I've just flipped over to bring this up on Wikipedia. Mm -hmm. um, there's a personification of this in a painting of a woman. So she's yes. shown bringing light from east to west, mm -hmm. string and telegraph wire. Okay, so that's like progress and technology. Is this, this is the one where she's flying in the air flying over the city? In the air. Or, yeah, 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 okay, yeah, 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 yeah. I remember this one, yeah. Holding a book and highlighting different stages of economic activity involving forms of transportation. And the book she's holding mm -hmm. is one of education. Right. But there's an insidious part of this. It is how to be white, the education, right? Yeah, yeah. So it includes some math and that kind of thing, but, but the, the whole thing is... Here's what you need to do to fit into the dominant society. And so what you're talking about now is a revisitation of that very old way of teaching people both the curriculum, the explicit curriculum. But now let's think about the hidden way where things were teaching people thinking. Uh, can you give us an example, Jake, of um, what hidden curriculum specifically like it in a classroom might look or sound like? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, in in, in a um, some of the hidden curriculum in a classroom is that when the teacher is speaking, we don't interrupt. Um, we uh, oh, stay yeah, yeah, in okay. we stay in our seat. Yeah, um, you know, we don't just we don't speak out of turn or out of order. So we control. We have impulse control. When someone gets the wrong answer, we don't. We allow the teacher to tell them they're wrong. We don't look over and laterally go, "God, you're stupid," even though that's what you might think. We don't let mm -hmm. that come out of your mouth. Like so, there's that scaffold of ways of connecting and relating that that are assumed, so that when they are breached, people turn and and are aghast and and shocked. And there's this pearl clutching moment that, how could you say that? Right. When everyone else was thinking it, God, you're stupid, right. but you said it. And we have to make sure that we can rein that in. That's some of those hidden hidden rules. Now, that's fun to watch in shows like Caddy, Caddyshack. Sorry for the yes. generation that is like, what's a Caddyshack? Caddyshack is a movie with, who was it? Um, was John Belushi in there? and um, Bill Murray. Bill Murray and a number of others yep. from Saturday Night Live. Yeah. And it was always a character coming in and breaking all the social norms and apparently being unaware of it. And it's really funny. There's one with Richard Pryor and a white guy where they kind of break social norms. It, it, what it, what I mean is we're all familiar with what this looks like, either having experienced it and being aghast or yeah. seeing it in a comedy film and laughing at the person who doesn't know that they're being that way, or they do know it. And it's the jokes the, on the, the this is curb your enthusiasm. Stiff. This yeah. is Larry David. Curb your it's, enthusiasm. All, it's, it's always the, Oh my gosh, this, the most cringy moments. Yes. So there's a part of that that's normal and that helps us function as social beings. Yeah. So we're at no point are we saying we shouldn't have a hidden curriculum. It's just the way things are. But acknowledging it and then thinking about how this applies to people on the spectrum, me with my Tourette's, mm -hmm. um, you gave a really interesting example about how people communicate. And if you're on the spectrum and, you, and maybe you're doing something 
Yeah. It's not, it's not something to be managed. And this is a kind of a, this is a, I think this is a very important thing to explore because this allows us, I think, to go even further. Could you share the When we were talking earlier, yeah, we we're talking yeah. about how, um, particularly with um, learners on the spectrum, there's a, a, a range of sensory inputs. Uh, and so maybe uh, higher functioning folks or who, who are able to, um, you know, accomplish things like getting to university and so or they may be hyper focused or really really great in a certain or particular area but struggle in others so there may be really good um sort of uh inputs in, in processing data sets and, and and others but lower functioning may have similar sensory inputs like being very tactile wanting to touch something so if your if your sofa had a a Plush. fabric that was yeah. yeah that was really soft or yeah. or 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 whatever uh, or ribbed uh, touching it over and over and over is is not something to just be interrupted and have them say stop doing that because a person could continually touch it and rub it you know rub a a, a pattern into it themselves you know from yeah. from wear it down and so the deficit model would be to interrupt that behavior and say stop doing that that's not what we do with that. Really, what you're doing is cutting off a sensory input in the way that they're experiencing the world, and so it's a less huh. helpful way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, because you're 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 cutting off a sense. It'd be like saying, "Stop looking at that. Don't listen to that." Like so, if you were in, yeah. trying to find the uh, neurotypical version of that, it would be cutting off one of these input senses that you rely on to navigate the world. Yeah. And maybe using my own Tourette's as a bit of an example here, it, it feels more like you're, you'd be saying, you have to stop seeing red. Okay. Mm -hmm. It's just blue, greens, and yellows. Stop. Right. Please stop seeing red. I'm like, I can't. How, how do I not see red? Like this feels impossible. With Tourette's, the compulsion to touch something and just talking about it is making me want to do it. There's sort of a bleeding out there. of the energy. What's that? I've been there with you. Yes, you have. You have, <laughs> you have definitely seen that and to go through it but it's because there's so much energy that if i can't just focus it on something and that that feeling just focusing on that feeling allows me to stay in the conversation or stick with mm -hmm. it or something but whenever somebody says um don't do that stop doing that or even reaches their hand out to shake my hand i have to back away like are you wow. you the more you tell me my i had somebody when i was taking really bad they came up you know how when you have the uh hiccups and you can scare somebody to stop the hiccups they um thought this could work <laughs> so they came over sorry sorry they came over and i'm sure i'm muttering swear words under my breath chopping and somebody came over and just yelled stop it and i went and i think i threw the knife threw everything that was on there went into a rage like i i freaked out because wow. my fight flight just kicked in and i it was yeah because in, they 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 flooded you there's this overwhelming sensory yeah. overload now oppositional disorder that's it oppositional yeah. disorder you come at me i have to back away we can't you can't say no right mm. i can't explain it i know it doesn't fit the way you all live in the world i can't stop being this way i'm really sorry i'll never be mm. able to conform to your rule so what i have heard people do is give you different strategies that are less distressful for the other group. So instead of licking it, what if you just touched it instead of yelling? What if you just tapped your head? So it's sort of behavior swapping a little bit. 
it's an interesting way to manage it because it leads to a place where I sort of have to feel like, you know what, I can't just do whatever I want and say whatever I want because there's going to be consequences from the people who aren't like that. But at the same time, they have to be able to understand that I can't just become, quote unquote, normal whenever right. I'm around them. That's not going to work either. So we have to meet. I think that's still somewhat of a version of that that applied um, behavioral analysis, that whole coaching method that that would suggest that what you need is an intensive behavioral intervention. And so they just try to substitute things. And so there's still an expertizing in that, or there's this this weird place where someone's trying to give you give you the education, give you the tool, give you that that. But that can't be that can't be a bad thing because we're not going to change the dominant culture. And I want to be successful. Not a bad thing. Okay. No, because it's that's an education thing. That is okay. what teachers do, right? So there is okay. this there is this gap, but there is a different way on the day to day. So sometimes that certainly is a way to teach. Okay. And, you know, if I go to school, I expect a teacher to teach with some sort of uh, regularized method and theory and approach. And that all makes sense. Especially when onset of Tourette's is like very young, six or seven year olds, you, you want to give them some guidance. Okay, Billy, you might want to consider doing this instead of, you know, punching other people when you're angry. But you're not six. <laughs> and no, so that, that person who comes up to you now should do so with more empathy and humility. Actually, you might, you are the, um, and that, that's the, a different approach that this professional development was teaching was this, was called this double empathy model or this double empathy approach that you are actually the subject matter expert of your experience. And so that you probably already have strategies. And so yeah. while I could say, Chris, here's what you need to do whenever you're going to, it's like when they say, if you're going to sneeze, look at the sun. Well, okay. Or look at a bright light. I've never heard that. I'm going to try that one. I don't know if it will work. You may burn your eyes out. Um, (laughs) People should not follow these. We have to put a caution note on the front of this. Some of the advice given in this episode may actually cause you physical harm. Well, we did suggest uh, a few episodes ago that, if you have a broken leg or a broken heart, just pop a couple Tylenol and you'll be fine. So I think um, we talked. I was about not. That. I was not on that episode. I would never yeah, have gone. You would that. never have said that. Yeah. No. So, so the the other idea is that you could ask a person a question. Uh, what has worked for you before, Chris? So this is the empathy model: is to say you probably have developed a strategy, and then we could talk about what's worked. So we start from a place of not a deficit, but really saying. What's worked so far? Really asking you to participate in the problem solving that's different than just me downloading the answer to you as the expert. Okay. So that that feels more in line with your, you know, you have a strong bias towards a restorative approach where everybody has a conversation together mm-hmm. and come up with solutions that uh, work for not everybody. Lo- not loving your tone. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and I have a bias towards a transformative approach to learning, which is all right. teachers should learn alongside of their students, no matter what the age they are, because transformative right. learning means that we're all revisiting how we see ourselves, what we Constantly. believe to be true and how we act, that we're always – and you uh, – just along these lines, I want to put a plug in for a book that you um, had me go out and get, which has been phenomenal for educators, um, but also really – influence my thinking do you remember the name of the book it's a large black kind of workbook for um yeah it's a uh, culture of the responsive teaching and the brain culture of the responsive teacher and the brain which brings no. neuroscience and some behavioral science into it right zaretta hammond 
And we'll put that in the show notes. We'll put that in the show notes. It's a, it's a great book. It's an easy read. But both of these things kind of come together with what was being shared in your class. And I have to tell you, if somebody came to me and said, hey, I'm an expert in Tourette's. I'm a neuroscientist. I've really studied it. And I think what you need to do is, you know, when you feel a tick coming on, look at the sun, I could say, and I think you <laughs> need a different line of education because that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my life. Now, today, would you try it? Honestly, <laughs> yes. Okay. Like I would, because I'm sure I don't know everything about my own experience too. Right. Okay. If we go to the workplace and we go beyond neural diversity. Yes. To broader lived experience diversity. Do the values or the principles, rather, of this approach play out similarly in a DEI type of a diversity, equity, and inclusion context as well? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah, yeah I, think, I think exactly they do because if you use the deficit model, this is when they hire someone to come tell them the answers and then just do this, 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 and your company will be inclusive and will have all of the best training and so this is the checkbox out of the box model. And that's the problem with the applied behavioral analysis is that we get the expert to come in and coach us up on it versus journey with us to say, actually, how do you want to learn to do this? What has worked? Where are the gaps? It's the tailoring versus the standardizing. Tailoring versus the standardizing. That's really interesting because you could tailor it to a whole bunch of different contexts as well. Like it, I think the tailoring lends itself more to... Um, the intersectional. Right. And, and we've talked a lot about that, but those various different ways that you're going to have to be responsive. Let's, I'll give you one more example here and we can explore this. This doesn't have to be the end of this conversation because it is quite interesting. I was enabled uh, to do a little bit of work with the uh, Prosper Portland, Port of Portland, City of Portland a few weeks ago. And Portland wants to get more of their local businesses or businesses that have a strong base there to consider purchasing from a hyper-local group of BIPOC business leaders. So it could be anything from the really easy stuff is sandwiches for your conferences, okay, all the way up to products that you might use in production or services that you might use when you're delivering services to your clientele. And they've built a website with all of these organizations listed there, it, they've done so much work. So uh, at the event, you know, which again, I'm speaking at that event from the perspective, not of a DEI expert, but of a white 53 year old male trying to figure it out mm -hmm. uh, along with everybody else um, in, in a similar position as me. And just sort of sharing where I've got to are some of the insights. So I'm not, I, I'm not, purporting to be anything, hopefully that I'm not. But afterwards, they did have a couple of, of business owners there and providing some items, teas and stuff like that, cookies, sweets for the event. And I went and said, has anybody, we made small talk. And then I said, has anybody ever, and I have to admit, I don't understand where whiteness stops and start and where professionalism stops and starts. Maybe professionalism is just whatever the dominant culture says is the way to do business. Maybe it's not. Maybe there's some standards that go beyond that that would be interesting to see globally. Well, whatever it is. Is it Western, East? I don't know. What I'm wondering is, has anybody talked to you about how your products and services are perceived and what you might do to make them more uh, fit? Fit. And I, I didn't say hidden rules. I didn't say hidden curriculum. But there's a way, there's a product that you make, and then there's a way that you interact with your customers and clients 
that I don't think anybody's like pulling back the curtain saying, okay, white people, they're kind of, they're not going to be into hot sauce as much. I don't, I, anything I say right now, Jacob, is going mm -hmm. to be a weird stereotype that can be used in very ugly ways or whatnot. But I, I, somehow I wanted to, I wanted to do a reveal just, and and I didn't think of it. I didn't have the language that you're sharing right now, which is the double empathy language. We did an episode on this in, in reverse uh, a couple months back oh. where the, the secret of selling to black community. Oh, yeah. So yeah, you're is, right. what, is what you're doing the inverse? Is that what you're trying to do? You're trying to let people in on the, hey, look, I'd love you to be successful. Here's the hack to sell to white people. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. Interesting. And it may be wrong no, to no, say No, no. I, well, I, think, I think it's interesting because it's, it is coming from this place of, I want you to be able to access as much of this wealth and success and yeah. as possible, right? There's, yeah. this, there's this untapped market and I fear that you're not able to access it. I think right. that's where this, this is coming that from. Is, that is. Like, and, and when you're not as successful as you should be, because these are freakingly good sweets or whatever, well, you, wouldn't is, you like to know... It's just, it's an easy solve for you. All you have to do is just do this. Now, can I ask two more questions? First please question. Do. To, no, please first, do. No, first question is just, and they're not, I don't think they're hard or anything like that, but just about the context and you don't have to share it if it sort of reveals uh, who you're talking to, but is there a difference between a product that is culturally based, sold by a black person in this story, or a black business owner selling is sort of a generic, um, like sweets, cupcakes. So I, at this professional development, I've not thought about this until you're talking. Uh, I, you know, during the day there was the, a break and there were muffins and donuts and cookies and coffee. And then at lunch there were wraps and salads and soup. And I didn't see the people coming and going. And I don't know if they bought that from a black business or an indigenous business or some of color. I, I don't know. I don't think I thought about it because nothing there in that made me think who made it, where did they buy from? So maybe they did, maybe they didn't. I don't know. It's, it's a question that we could ask. And I think maybe we can interrogate people. Um, who are we supporting when we have these breaks? That's probably a fair question. Do we always go to the same people? But now what I'm thinking, I like oxtail and pig feet. I like that. Culturally, that's a treat for me. And only certain members of my family will cook it. Uh, my mom does not, does not like it. So I have to go to extended. So, And, you, and just for listeners, your dad is white, your mom is black. Yes. And she will not cook this food for you. She, nope. We should unpack why your mom is still cooking food for you at, at your age, but let, we can okay, keep going. Okay, there we go. We're unpacking my stuff now. Okay, good. Yeah. No, fair enough. Um, <laughs> so, so, but what would that lunch break have looked like if at the end of the professional development, we all get up and we, and we oh, walk no. over oh. and it's just pig feet and oxtail. Oh, man. I would have felt great. And I wonder also, if I scanned across the room, who else is not feeling comfortable? So, so that's my question when I'm thinking about you're your asking, who are we supporting? 
there's probably a couple layers questions to that. Is it about the product or is it about the person being an owner? And sometimes it might be both. So capitalism has no morality to it. No soul. It doesn't care. It works well for the good guys and the bad guys. It doesn't even care if your guys doesn't care at all. It's like, if somebody wants it and you can make money, we're the system to make it possible for you. Whatever good or bad or evil or ambivalent thing or stupid thing that you're selling, right? Low cost versus best value or added value. So supposedly, but even human beings aren't that rational. They're just, we could, ooh, it's a brighter color. I'll buy that. Or the font is more familiar. I'll buy that. Like we can be endlessly manipulated to be attracted to a bunch of hidden clues. But one thing about capitalism is it, it caters to what most people want most of the time. Right. That's the that's why the mediocre, dumbed down products mm-hmm. with the largest margin and the biggest market share, you know, do so well. It's not they're not even necessarily the right products. And we're getting into something that well, I don't really no, care about. I, too I, much. I don't but. I don't think we are. Let, let, let's go there for a second, because I'm thinking about you used an example about the catering. Right. Yeah. Uh, I, and I want to get back because I want to ask a more I, questions. I, I'm thinking about that at the institution that I work for. Yeah. You have to bid on it. And there's yeah, procurement like rules. A tender. Right? Yeah, there's RFP. a tender. And, and you have to put in that. And I I think lots of people, if we're talking about these hidden rules, if I were just starting a business, how do I ever figure that out? If I'm really good at making cupcakes, that's what I'm good at. Yeah. How do I ever figure out yeah. this other there's that whole who do thing. I need? Yeah. So who who where you where need are the guys? Teach you accounting, well, banking, or real estate. Or the people who are doing the procurement realize that there's a gap. And then they go out and try to solve that for folks. So instead of just waiting passively for people to find you, maybe if your commitment is to finding more, you know, spreading some of this wealth around to other uh, communities that have less access to it, maybe there is actually a procurement allyship. Yes. Where you look at... Who always applies? Procurement allyship. I don't know. I just made that up. No, I'm going to steal that. Well, you didn't hear when I said trademark. I, I just have to say it. Hey, can I get our editors to remove this so I can take full advantage of this? He's never going to use it. Okay. Oh, okay. So you're going to steal from the... Okay. Oh, that's, man. That's, that's, that's true. That's point. a bad example. Oh, and we're, we're teaching in real time, folks. And scene. <laughs> <laughs> this was a skip. And that was a whole... That was a long walk to that. We, we got you. Got you again. Okay. Oh, man. Okay. Pro- procurement allyship. Procurement allyship, we we propose something very similar for hiring with uh, diversity. Um, part of the problem is when uh, newcomers come to Canada, they're not always in on all the rules of an interview. For example, very yes, real yeah. example, that guy showed up with a, uh, to a coaching session about getting a job in Canada. He's incredibly well qualified, very experienced, and has a ton of education. So this resulted in a 35-page resume. Holy. 30 Five pages and his name was not white. So mm-hmm. nobody was reading it. We went to the hiring managers and like, well, apparently he doesn't know what he's doing. Like who hands in? I'm not going to, I'm not going to teach this guy how to do work. Sorry. 35 pages is my first red flag that this is never going to work out. And they never once thought maybe this is my problem, right? Maybe 35 pages has nothing to do with competency and professionalism. Maybe it's just my Western white way of seeing the world. And we all know CVs should be two pages, maybe three, but two pages at the most. One page is what we prefer. So they did this hiring round and they brought in a number of newcomers and um, 
unexpected uh, people with a lot of, you know, issues around intersectionality, um, meaning multiple levels or multiple things that people might be uh, prejudiced towards them on based on stereotypes and that kind of thing. And then we were going to look at the hiring managers. And after they gave them their advice on how to get a job in a white Northwestern world city, mm-hmm. um, we were going to sit down with them and start to begin, well, what is wrong with 35 pages? Is it objectively a problem? So why are you having such a strong reaction to that? And what does that mean about you? So we were going to try and get at the bias of the hiring manager, which is a big part of the problem, and then letting one group in know know about the bias of the hiring manager so they could navigate around it and wouldn't be blocked by it. But we felt like we had to work both ends of the problem. Is is that a good example of double empathy? Yeah, and I think that's exactly what you're talking about doing with your um, I was gonna say your your cupcake story or the, the person yeah, yeah, who no, makes in, food sweets, right? With Prosper Portland, yeah, sure. Yeah, so you're you're saying that you're going to help them navigate yeah. these hidden rules of some, you know, this hidden curriculum of some sort. At the same time, working with uh, corporations to the procurement to see managers. Them. Yeah, to see and, and, and you're 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 drawing people toward that um, quote unquote middle space. And and I think that is it, where people start to see each other. Because I, I really felt that until the procurement manager could take a sort of a interlocutor role, you know, this That's phrase, right? right? Yep. Yep. To to not only let the thousands of hyperlocal BIPOC business owners in on the hidden rules or the hidden curriculum that he has to look back because he can't change everybody's mind in a company of 20,000 people. But he can at least say, Here, here's what they're coming with. I'm just going to tell you that. But then turn around to the 20,000 and say, you know, let them in on it too. Like this may be out of the norm, but here's what we're doing here. Like to sort of, they could navigate back and forth and play a much more critical role in bringing uh, black owned or BIPOC owned businesses into the mainstream. So I think that's right. And one of the ways, if you're looking for practical everyday allyship opportunities, it is built on this posture of trying to, to, you know, to, to seek understanding. So if someone wasn't successful, instead of delivering that you weren't successful, if you really wanted them to be successful next time, you might help them fill in that gap. Here's the place where this didn't work. And you'd say, well, I'd have to do that for everyone. No. Because no, if you're doing it, if, if you're doing yeah. it as a response to something yeah. that has historically been unequitable or inequitable, that that at least you can uh, get yourself over that hump that you have to do it for everyone. Right, right. Which, by the way, is called the slippery slope. Is a well-known logical fallacy. There, there's no if I do it for you, I have to do it for everyone. That's what you tell your children when you don't want to have to do something for one kid when he asks. So. It's, it's dumb. There's no logic to that. Don't take my word for it. Look it up on Wikipedia. Logical fallacies is one of the top ones listed. I'll be writing it right now on Wiki. Oh, man. In a, in a meeting when somebody says, well, it's a slippery slope, I think, well, that person's not too smart. But, but you don't say it out loud because you understand the hidden rule. That's true. Unless, I, unless I'm ticky and I just blurt out, dummy, something like that, which has happened before. That's amazing. Yeah, to, uh, awkward, likely, but there's something about unvarnished truth coming out, <laughs> <laughs> and then not being able to say anything back. You've kind of got them in a double bind. <laughs> Who's going to get mad? No okay. one. Okay, 
So this could be a whole other episode mm-hmm. next time on uh, how do you use this to just wreak havoc? Your superpower. <laughs> Your superpower. Yeah. Well, this is this is an, I I really I like uh, you know I used to use the phrase hidden rules. I I kind of like this phrase hidden curriculum. It's you know I guess. 68 is when it started uh-huh. to come out. 70, there's a book written about it. And, and in the academic institutions, it's quite well We'll We'll put some in the show notes. Hid, hidden, yeah. hidden social curriculum. Yeah. Hidden social curriculum. And I like applying. I'm going to take this back and apply it to a couple of projects. I like the double empathy piece as well. I think it's a great framework to kind of understand some of the things we've been trying to do. So that's, that's very helpful. Thank you. That's yeah, been super fun. All right. Next time, how to blow up the world. Perfect. Can't wait. This has been a Podstarter production. production.